long. But as soon as it's over, you should be able to have a really quick recovery to come right back to relaxation, stillness, and clarity. To reboot. And then re- be ready for the next thing. Maybe it will be a lot of talking over over the you know, dinner. Or maybe it will be a really interesting question that comes up. And I'll be calling on free you know, right after the meditation. Um, but just whatever it is, that you can always keep on coming back. Like a yo-yo. I used to do the yo-yo. And you have a sleeper. And it would go out for a long time. And then you'd flick it and it'd come back. And then you'd go around the world and flick it back. You know, you'd do it and you'd walk the cradle, or cradle something, walk the dog or something. That different kind of little, you know, ten-year-old tricks that kids with you do with yo-yos, right? Um, rock the cradle. That's what it's called. Rock the cradle. But then you always come back, right? So just as you do all those fancy things, walking, walking the dog. Remember that one? And then around the world and rocking the cradle. And there's one little thing like ding, 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 like that you can do. But you always keep on coming back. And then you're ready for the next one, whatever it is. So the yo-yo of the mind goes out to photo photo shoots and then to dinner and then to question and answer. But if we can keep on coming back, every time there's that interval, not just to go from scatteredness to scatteredness, which is very easy to do. It's kind of like the mode of the world, right? Just go from one agitation to another agitation and then feel exhausted at the end of the day. But go from one event back to center to another event back to center. You know, with quick recovery. And then, and it can be 30 seconds, but that settling body, speech, and mind. And then, oh, okay, now what? You know. But approaching the next event from a place of stillness, just clean the slates, fresh, now something totally different, totally not that, is that about to begin. So let's have one session. I'll actually give a little bit of guidance at the beginning. Okay? Nothing new. That's, we don't need anything new now. And then as if with a happy sigh of relief, as all the commotion of the previous activity has settled, everything that needs to be done was done, invite your awareness to come and settle. Settle in the field of the body right down to the ground, settling, coming face to face with the earth element without visualization, in the felt let it be just the felt. as in the storm shelter from in which you take refuge from the tornado above. Just release the tornado of the mind. Come right down to the storm shelter of the body, this quiet, non-conceptual space. And from the ground up, let your awareness fill the space of the body, quietly, moment by moment, attentive to the sensations that arise within this field.
And with each out-breath, feel your, your shoulders relax, the muscles soften as you surrender your muscles to gravity. And then all the muscle groups in the face, those around the jaws and the mouth, the forehead and around the eyes, all softening, melting. In this way, utterly set your body at ease, in a posture of comfort and relaxation. And yet, for those who are sitting, letting your spine be erect, your sternum slightly raised, your abdominal muscles loose and relaxed. So that when you breathe in, or when the breath flows in, even a shallow breath, you feel the sensations of the breath flow right down to the lower abdomen, which expands as the breath flows in. And the belly falling back as the breath flows out. And each breath is an opportunity that will never be repeated. Once gone by, forever gone by. An opportunity to let go, to release excess muscular tension. Release the breath and release thoughts with every out-breath. Total surrender. complete surrender as you give away the whole breath, not pushing it out, just letting it go. But letting it go and letting it go until there's nothing more to release. You've given it all away. And then fearlessly, resting there right in the present moment, Simply allowing the next breath to flow in, given but not taken. Effortlessly flowing in like the tide. Whether that in-breath is short or long, just let it be. 
simply witnessing the breath, but relinquishing all control. Then with the confidence that nothing for the time being, for this, short, for this short session, requires your thought, you really can put the rest of the world on hold just for a little while, without assurance. Set your mind at ease about the past and the future. Allow yourself that freedom that luxury. To let your awareness come to rest in stillness, this dynamic, effervescent, ever-changing, present moment. relaxed in the sense of being unperturbed by the concerns of the past and the future. Still, in the sense of not wavering from the present moment. And clear in the sense of being mindfully aware when the in-breath in flows in you're aware that it flows in when the breath flows out you're aware that it flows out knowing whether it is short or long sustaining an ongoing flow of knowing knowing the flow of the respiration.
So there's always something to attend to, always an object of mindfulness. And that is the in and out flow of the breath. The outer shell of your attentive awareness. Not deliberately looking outside of the body, outside of this tactile field. wild steed of your mind, of your attention, corralled within the field of the body. This outer shell, the body breathing, is in the public domain. Other people can witness you breathing. They know when you're breathing in, breathing out, whether it's long or short. It's public. But there's the inner domain. The thoughts and images, the desires and emotions that arise in your mind. Others may be able to infer them, but only you can witness them directly with your faculty of introspection. So while maintaining the flow of mindfulness of the breathing, monitor the flow of your awareness, the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, attend to this too inwardly with your faculty of introspection.
There is the mindfulness of the breath, something outward. There's introspection of something inner, the activities of the mind. And then there is the secret nucleus of your own mind, consciousness itself, which can neither be measured nor inferred. Robots behave, computers simulate thinking and planning and remembering. But there are no objective means for detecting the presence of consciousness or its absence. But it is your most indubitable knowing, your awareness of being aware, the inner and secret nucleus. inner essence of the practice. So sustain this multi-dimensional flow of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the breathing, introspective awareness of the activities of the mind, and the innermost awareness simply of being aware. Each of these three interfacing with the other two. Full presence of mind. Embodied mind. Now release your deliberate attention, your voluntary attention focusing on the breath. Turn the full force of mindfulness to the space of mind, and whatever arises within it as you settle your mind in its natural state. Inwardly imbued with the awareness of being aware.
Release your attention. Disengage your attention from the activities of the mind. Focus on the deep space of the mind, most evident during the intervals between thoughts. There is just the space of the mind and your awareness of it. Release your engagement with the space of the mind and let your awareness come home with no directionality to it. Resting in its own place, resting in its own place, holding its own ground. The awareness of being aware. Well, that's all. So you can judge for yourselves. I invite you to do so.
the swiftness with which you, just in 24 minutes, recovered the composure of your awareness after a lot of activity out there, and whether you would have that same ability eight weeks ago. And some of you, I think the answer is yes. And perhaps for others, not. So, if there was some change, then that's a good change. But it's quite wonderful, isn't it? In 24 minutes to be able to come back and know your home. Right? And it's home, it's a good place to be. I wanted to share before we go to Free's question, one of my favorite images. I haven't shared it in this retreat. I like it. If it's useful, it's useful. If it's not, don't worry about it. It won't take too long. <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> it won't take more than 25 minutes, for sure. Or 35 or 40. Uh, that's actually relatively short. Imagine, though, it's kind of like fun. Imagine that you're living oh, in some northern place in, in January, you know, whether it's Detroit or Montreal or Oslo or Moscow, wherever it may be. And you've been saving up your money, and you have two weeks of vacation in midwinter. And you saved up your money, let's say, to go to Tahiti in January. You know, and you're coming from Moscow or Stockholm. Not bad cities, but a bit harsh in the winter. You know? And you saved it up to really be able to enjoy yourself for two whole weeks, and you fly down there, eagerly anticipating the joy of being in Tahiti, with that incredible water, the beauty of the air, the clear clarity, the warmth of the sun. You arrive there, you dump all your luggage in your hotel, and you zip off to the beach, and you get yourself one of those uh, air mattresses. Air mattresses. You guess you're here to relax, not to, you know, try to do a killer vacation and you know see all the sights. You're here just to soak up Tahiti in January, you know. And you get on your air mattress. And you kind of just gently paddle out. Nothing macho here. You're here just to relax and enjoy yourself. <laughs> and you get your little air mattress out and you go beyond the waves. So in other words, crashing, go beyond that. So now you're on the far side where you just experience, you, you're on that and you're, you're out there in the, just beyond the surf. So you feel the gentle rise, the undulations of the waves before they, you know, they rise up and, and are curling and crashing. So you're just there where the water's rising up and down, rising up and down. It's one of those perfect days, hot but not burning hot. The water is just perfect temperature. And there it is. You've got your nice suntan oil on it. You, you, lie on, you lie on your back on this air mattress. And you have a sense, this is what I saved up for. Tahiti. Better than Shaman. <laughs> at least maybe and you're lying there and you you definitely don't want to fall asleep because if you if you fell asleep you could be back in Stockholm you want to fall asleep stay home in Moscow right no you want to be awake here you want to enjoy Tahiti every single moment of it so you lie there you close your eyes you totally bring your awareness into the body and you feel these gentle swells rising falling rising and falling and every time it falls you just start to melt and melt and melt and rising and falling and like whoa this is relaxing this is this is worth every cent I want to come back next year rising and falling and you're just there after a while but you definitely want to, don't want to fall asleep again otherwise just go back to your hotel room but there you are and then after some time 
you notice just how crystal clear the water is, spectacularly clear. And the sun is just beaming right overhead. The water is transparent. And happily, you brought your face mask and a snorkel. You know, so you said, oh, this is so great, but that water is so beautiful. I can see some fish down there. So you roll over onto your belly and you just put your face mask down to the water with the snorkel coming up, continuing to breathe completely normally. But now you're looking there and suddenly there's this whole three-dimensional underwater marvel world, you know, of coral, of fish, of all kinds of things swimming through. And you're primarily still experiencing just this really relaxing rise and fall, the undulation of the waves, very much in your body. But you're really enjoying now. This is this is pretty cool there. Oh, there's some fish there and all that beautiful coral over there. And here comes something swimming through. And oh, little crustaceans down there. But mostly just in your body. And then after a while, you know, minutes, half an hour, an hour, two hours going by, you kind of like, this is so beautiful. I want to take a closer look. So you... You slip off the air mattress. You just hold on to it with one hand. And there you are, just floating on the surface of the water. And now, really, oh, that is so beautiful down there. Now you can really see it. Looking around, and it's this hole, maybe looking down ten meters. Crystal clear water. and All the fish swimming through, and the light percolating in, and the, the patterns of light on the, on the ocean floor, and so forth. So you're just more marginally aware of the rise and fall of the of the air mattress there, and so you have, you have, you have security, you have a place, you know, you're not going to sink, you get it right there, so nothing to worry about, point of reference. But this is so interesting, so beautiful, you never know what's coming up next, as you just kind of watch this whole three-dimensional field. And it's kind of nice to know you have that point of reference, but it's, you don't really need that much. And as you're just floating there, and this being salt water, then you notice, hey, actually I don't really need to have my hand on the air mattress, because I'm not going to sink. I just keep my body body out like this, and I still float. And so, okay, buy air mattress, no problem. And now you're just totally floating, and your whole attention is given to that underwater magical world, just taking it all in, whatever's arising and passing, just letting it be, and just totally focusing there, and having a nice vacation. The segue, there can be a very smooth segue from mindfulness of breathing, where you're primarily attending to something that kind of really does relax you, let you unwind, not too hard to attend to, the body breathing, but then gradually kind of bringing a bit more energy, a bit more light, luminosity to introspection, to take a little bit more attention, a little bit more interest in what's arising and passing, the thoughts, memories, and so forth arising in the mind. And then as you just get more subtle, more grounded, so they don't tend to pull you so much, then starting to focus primarily on the space of the mind and its contents, but maintaining that peripheral awareness of the in-breath, out-breath, so you're not so easily carried away by thoughts. And then as you get more grounded, more loose, more relaxed, at ease, then feeling, I don't really think I need to take, give any more attention to the breath. It'll take care of itself. And giving the whole attention to the space of the mind and its contents. But I mentioned, I gave the whole image of the Tahiti and so forth, because it's the right ambience. It's the right ambience. You're not there in Tahiti to see, okay, how many fish can I see? I'm going to keep tallies, you know. How long have I been here? Is it a 24-minute session? Shall I extend it to 27? Maybe I can do 30. Maybe I can do five sessions a day today, you know. And I can tell everybody, I've spent five sessions in the air mattress. And they said, what are you talking about? Why are you counting? 
the ambience is right. You really want to be there. You're enjoying it. It's very relaxing. And actually it gets more and more interesting too as you continue in it. So, something like that. You know, where you can actually make a smooth transition from mindfulness of breathing into settling the mind. And then as we did in last meditation, then just releasing even the awareness of the contents, even the space, and then just coming home and staying there. Very smooth transition. Oh yeah, free. I'm sure your question still lingers. Still have something to deliver? Microphone coming. Thank you, Diego. Um, mine's a bit more of a theoretical question, not a burning one for right now, but in exploring the Dzogchen view of beginninglessness yes. that we've I've learned about in this retreat, um, and comparing it to my understanding of beginningness before. I guess my question, I just want to talk a bit after my question, but my question is kind of on the Dzogchen view where you have this uh, metaphor of a dream and uh, you wake up. How can, what reasons can we kind of give to say that you won't fall asleep again? And I guess I was thinking about that just because in the other view of beginninglessness that I understood is sort of suggests more infinite regression where you have sort of beginningless ignorance and beginninglessness um, awareness as well, like knowing. Yeah. 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 So there's no first moment. So, so there's no first moment. Oh, so that, yeah, that yeah, yeah, right. Clearly, in both yeah. whether one's going mainstream Mahayana or going Dzogchen, is there a first moment? Yeah. Nope. But with Dzogchen view, there's sort of a first moment in the sense there's a first moment of knowing, a first moment that you can recall, like using the dream metaphor that you can wake up. And James sort of touched on this in his other question where Mm -hmm. it kind of implies this idea of some sort of cause or creation event or something that happened before to give rise to that moment of uh, becoming into the dream. And at least maybe from the point of Rigpa people, you get this sort of idea that maybe Rigpa knows why you've started knowing, why you started self-grasping. You know, there's, there's this sort of suggestion there. And so I guess I just wanted to see if you could comment a bit more on, uh, if someone hears that like me or, or someone else, um, what kind of reason you give for not waking up and then falling asleep again, if you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, certainly in no school of Buddhism that I've ever heard of, is there a notion that you will strive for whether three countless eons or for one lifetime, achieve perfect awakening, and then just get it into your mind, I think it's time to fall back asleep again and do it all over again. Not in any school. This is nowhere there. Um, now the very word rikpa or vidya, vidya of course is just the opposite of avidya, and that's one of the biggest terms in Buddhism in all schools, uh, it literally means not knowing. Avidya is not knowing or unaware. Um, so that runs through everything. And in all schools, I'm going to really focus on the common ground first, in all schools, um, when, in so many, in the Pali Canon, so many cases, I mean, it has to be dozens, scores, maybe even hundreds, I don't know, where the Buddha or some Arhat, some other realized being, uh, will give some teaching. And often it's something really quite short. And the person listening, attending very closely to the Buddha's words, will become a stream enterer right there. A stream enterer. Now that's a first time forever event. You don't become a stream enterer twice. 
You know, you're, once you're a stream enter, you're a stream enter. You'll never become a stream enter all over again, as if you slipped out of the stream. That's the whole thing of becoming. Now you've, you've entered marga. I'll use the Sanskrit. You've entered marga. You've entered the path. And that means if you've just entered the path, you've never done it before. And was there a cause for that? You betcha. Whether it's Tilopa smacking Naropa, Naropa with a, with a sandal, whether it's Buddha speaking of dependent origination, um, whatever it is, there's a, definitely, there's no question about it. Or whether it's practicing texture or receiving pointing out instructions, these are all within the matrix of causality within time, within space. And in all of these cases, something absolutely unprecedented may take place. You know, um, and so one of the classic ones is achieving stream entry. Um, so there are causes for that, and then having achieved stream entry, then for the first time ever, you become a once returner. Never achieved that before, and then a non-returner. Never achieved that before, and then an arhat. Well, it's your first time that you. It's not a second dance. It's, it's everybody's first try, right? And that goes for being coming an Arya Bodhisattva and so forth. So there it is. It's all laid out linearly, linearly, in all schools of Buddhism. No first point. So even when the Buddha, Buddha said, or more, more recently, just maybe twenty, fifteen years ago, when this um, probably it must have been Dupakakyu, Dupang Rinpoche, probably Dupakakyu from from Daishijong, the one that was featured in the Yogis of Tibet, the, the movie with all the dreadlocks and hair and so forth, Dupang Rinpoche. He was the one that looked into the camera. If you've seen it, it's rather memorable. Looks into the camera and said, "I can remember. I can remember all my past lives." That's 15 years ago. So, when someone says like that, or the Buddha saying something comparable, then your question—I think it was from you, or either you or James—said, "Oh, okay. That means you can remember the first one. If you remember all of them, but no, the question implies if you ask, oh, that means you can remember the first one implies there what there was a first one, but that's a false implication." There was no first one. Can you remember all of them? Yeah. In the sense that, and I did respond to this earlier, it said that wherever the Buddha turned his mind, wherever he, whatever he, if he looked for the first one, then not finding. But he looked for any particular lifetime. What, so he looks for some karmic effect and said, okay, could he trace that back to the previous life in which the karmic seed had been sown for that effect? The answer was always yes. That, I mean, this is Buddhist belief, clearly. We can't put this one to the empirical test very readily. So, in that regard, there's really, it's across the board, it's true for every, every school of Buddhism that I know of. It's very linear, it's sequential, uh, and there are stages on the path in Dzogchen. You know, there are four visions that arise in the, in the direct crossing over. There's realization of Rikpa, becoming a Vijayatara, the practice of the breakthrough, the direct crossing of the, uh, the breakthrough. Um, so all of that makes very good sense from the perspective of an unenlightened awareness, where we have a sense, I wasn't a stream enter, and then I am. I wasn't a vidyadatta, and now I am. And it's a true statement, that is for a person who is making that authentically. But then one can ask, is there only one perspective on that reality? Well, no matter what the referent is, whatever you, what X marks the spot, whatever reality, there's never only one perspective. Doesn't matter what it is, there's, only, there's never one, only one perspective. And so, 
we can ask, well, what's this like from the perspective of a Buddha? And the answer that and now it's very much the Dzogchen answer, for which the teachings are so often taught from the perspective of a Buddha, right? Um, and that is that from that perspective, everyone's a Buddha. There's no one out there who's not a Buddha. So there's no point of time in which you become a Buddha. You're already a Buddha. Because that's what a Buddha is seeing. Now, is the Buddha living only a pure land where everything's just hunky-dory? You can sit, sit back and just enjoy being a Buddha forever because of obliv- oblivious of every, everything that, you know, is not seen from a Buddha's perspective. And this is where we start slipping very quickly over into the realm of this is inconceivable. Uh, and there is a limit to logic and imagination of an unenlightened being. But somehow, in some mysterious way that cannot be fully grasped, but perhaps can be somehow mysteriously intuited to some degree, that a Buddha's awareness, on the one hand, attending to any individual here, will see right through to Buddha nature and see there's no one there apart from a Buddha, on the one hand. On the other hand, recognizing that from the perspective of sentient beings, from that perspective, they don't feel themselves to be Buddha, and they're not experiencing the bliss of a Buddha, and they are experiencing suffering that a Buddha doesn't experience, and mental afflictions, and they engage in behavior that a Buddha would not do, you know, out of driven by mental afflictions. So they're aware of both simultaneously, right? The reality from their perspective, the reality from the myriad worlds of sentient beings from their perspective, and that the compassion of a Buddha is non-dual. So the compassion of the Buddha for you is from your perspective. Not looking at you from outside on a, on a Buddha cloud someplace up in a pure land, looking way down there, Phuket. Oh, look at him way down there. You know, not dualistic. Then the Buddha would just be caught up in dualistic grasping like everybody else. The Buddha's compassion for you is from your own perspective. Not seeing you from outside. Not seeing you as, as an object of meditation, someone over yonder but experiencing your suffering non-dually, experiencing your mental afflictions, being petty, being angry, being envious, being grumpy, being agitated, being frustrated that you're not making more progress in shamatha, all of that being experienced from your perspective. The Buddha experiences your frustrations, your hopes and fears from your perspective. Non-dually. But immutably, So how is that possible? Because clearly the Buddha is not looking at it from outside. That would just be flat-out dualistic, not the way it is. So, that's as far as any words that I could say would go. But that what this implies then is that there is, from where you are, there is a Buddha mind witnessing everything you're experiencing. And it's not somebody else's Buddha mind. Snooping in sneaking in, being a spy. It's not somebody else's. Everything you're experiencing, bodily sensations, pain in the ankle, stiffness at the neck, missing loved ones, dreading going home. The Buddha's experiencing all of that. But in a fusion of, let's see if this rings a bell, in a fusion of stillness and motion, 
So while your mind is in motion, off to the future, the past, mental afflictions, virtuous mental states, coming and going, coming and going, the Buddha's mind is aware of all of that. And viewing it all from a place of utter stillness. But total luminosity. And recognizing that even all this that you experience is being so perturbing, upsetting, agitating, and so forth. Let's go through the list. Delusion arising. Anger and craving. Envy and pride arising and rising. The Buddha witnessing that from your perspective, from your side. The Buddha experiencing these sees these are simply like refracted rays of light of primordial consciousness. And seeing that they are not anything other than expressions of your own Buddha mind. And seeing that, not imagining it, not pretending, but seeing that even the darkest contortions, obscurations, afflictions of your mind are nothing other than the refracted light of your own pristine awareness of primordial consciousness. And seeing that there is no, they're not toxic. There's nothing toxic about them. Not from the Buddhist perspective. Right? But aware that there is, in some domain of reality, an experience of suffering that's catalyzed by these same processes, but per- perceived from the perspective of dualistic grasping. And that suffering also is experienced. And witnessing that suffering, but from the perspective of utter stillness. And of course, the Buddha witnessing the permutations of your own body, the experiences arising in your, uh, permutations of your mind, the experiences arising in your body and what you experience in the surrounding environment. The Buddha mind that is witnessing all of that, of course, is not other than your own pristine awareness waiting to recognize itself. So once again, so crucial to recognize. It's not somebody else looking in. So how is all that possible? How is that possible? That all that could be going on? How is it possible that there could be a perspective from your side that feels an absolute evenness, an absolute, I mean really, truly, absolute lack of preference to suffering and joy, to samsara and nirvana? From your perspective. How is that conceivable? Well, it's not. It's not conceivable. It's unimaginable. That's the whole point. And it's ineffable. I mean, I just use words, words to refer to something with it, that we can't find any target for in our experience. But the whole point of the practice, Dzogchen most explicitly, is to directly realize that which is inconceivable and ineffable and know it immediately. So in our simple practices of settling the mind in this natural state, a simple shamatha practice, anybody can do it, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, old, young, whatever, belief system, materialist, whatever, anybody can do it that wishes to do it and puts their mind to it. We are seeking to, we're taking a first step in arousing, cultivating, manifesting a way of knowing with which, so odd, or enormously familiar and in many cases utterly unfamiliar 
And I don't mean to be playing with words. But we're enormously familiar in the sense that we all know what it's like. We've had the experience innumerable times of knowing things directly prior to and independently of thinking about them, labeling them, categorizing them, evaluating, judging, and so forth, contextualizing them. We've all experienced that. A more baseline way of knowing that's immediate, direct, and non-conceptual. We've all experienced it innumerable times. But it's not something we're trained in, and it's not something you can display on an exam, or, you know, show up in a business report, or paint, or, you know, show up in music. But in this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, we are arousing and sustaining that mode of knowing that is preconceptual, but utterly clear, discerning, sharp, razor sharp, utterly knowing. It's just not talkative. You know? And that's just the knowing from the substrate consciousness. And then we break through that to another type of knowing that in fact has been going on all along. Because Rikba doesn't start, is not born when you achieve the breakthrough. It's been there all along. It's always the knowing. Rikpa saturates everything you've ever known, everything you've ever experienced. But you shave off the outer layers, the obscurations, the dualistic grasping and so forth, and then you come down to the baseline, the ultimate baseline of knowing, which is directly the opposite of the avidya that stands as the root of samsara. And so it's the deepest knowing. But it's a knowing that by nature is inconceivable, ineffable, and limitless. And it's already present where you are. So, Dzogchen really is just a matter of peeling off layers to know that which is inconceivable. But which in a way is already known. So the lovely metaphor, I'll end on this point, the lovely metaphor, when one gains some glimpse, and to varying degrees a fair number of people have had some glimpse, whether it's through Zen or Chan or pointing out instructions, whatever it may be, some glimpse of that dimension of consciousness. You know? And in Dzogchen, Mahamudra and so forth, it's very actively cultivated. You get some glimpse. And then this lovely metaphor, one of the most beautiful in the whole, in the whole Vajrayana tradition, not just Dzogchen, is that when you have some glimpse of that, maybe it's a sustained glimpse through very sustained, intensive practice of really getting the taste of Rikpa, and eventually then, you go through the transition of dying up to the blackout point and then beyond the blackout point and that clear light of death arises. That this beautiful image is like of a child crawling onto its mother's lap. You know? The child clear light, that which you've had some glimmering of, some taste, some intimation of in the course of your life and then crawling up in the mother's lap coming home to here's here's the mama and that is the mother clear light rising up to meet you. Or the corollary image is of a mother and child who have been separated perhaps by some natural disaster or what have you and the child grows up separately and the mother doesn't know where the child is and years go by. But then as a result of fortuitous, fortuitous circumstances they're brought together and as soon as the, the child sees the mother and the mother sees the child, there's instant recognition of someone who has forgotten 
but now, having seen, is instantly recognized. And there is an absolute certainty in it. There's no question, that's my mom, that's my child. Right? And so likewise, this clear light of death like that, that instant recognition that is utterly indubitable, cannot be doubted, but way beyond intellect, beyond, beyond, beyond. Primal, primal knowing. So there's no substitute for that. No amount of cogitation, no amount of inference, no amount of shamatha, not even vipassana. Not even Vipassana. Not even Vipassana. Kama Chakmed in his book, Spacious Path of Freedom. And I think he was citing Tilopa. He was talking about the questing. I know, for example, where is Aiden? Where is Aiden sitting? Is Aiden here? There is Aiden. This, this thirsting mind that you have, you know, this mind that wants to know, that inquires. I know others as well, Katinka and others, wishing to understand, investigating, not quite satisfied just to settle the mind in its natural state. Let's probe in where are these thoughts coming from. What is the nature? How did it dissolve? And really seek and understand. This is a noble pursuit. I mean, it's really core, very, very meaningful. Right? And then I think it was Gamachakman, 17th century Lama, citing someone from the what, 11th century, Tilopa. I think it was Tilopa, saying, all right. But after all that inquiring, there's a time when you just stop. This is after Shamatha. Shamatha is earlier. And there's this whole phase of Shamatha, of Vipassana, really seeking, probing, investigating, asking questions. And then to Lopa, I think it was, says, okay, now, at some point, I just stop. And the very next phase is Mahamudra. Where the act of seeking ceases. And you're ready, as if you've just given out your whole out-breath. And then you just stop. And you see what's given without her taking. And the breath just flows in. So having done due diligence, bring in a term from the business world, having done due diligence, done the hard work of shamatha. It's hard work. You all know that. You don't need any persuasion from me. <laughs> and the vipassana, you'll find that's a lot of hard work too. You know? And you've done due diligence. You've not just fluffed over it lightly. You've not just gone through the motions. You've really done due diligence. Having done that, Gain the insights for which such practices are designed. And then having done that, then there's a time now. You've now breathed out. And now you can just stop. And allow the breath to flow in. And Rikma rises up to meet you. Something like that. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. But the words are very good. I think the words, I actually have a lot of confidence in the words. But of course I don't know what I'm talking about. But that shouldn't matter too much. Enjoy a meal. Hey, we get to talk. But I've talked enough.